Well, let me invite you to turn in your Bibles this morning to uh, Revelation chapter 20. Revelation chapter 20 for our time of study uh, in the Word this morning. Uh, For those of you that maybe are new here at Cornerstone, we're doing a verse-by-verse study through the book of Revelation, and as we continue in our study of this book, we come this morning to Revelation chapter 20, verse 1. We're going to be looking at verses 1 through 10, and the title of the message is The Millennial Reign of Christ. The Millennial Reign of Christ. It's hard to believe, but we are um, about two weeks away right now from the 20th anniversary of the tragedy of 9-11-2001, a day that is seared into many of our uh, memories. A week after uh, the attacks that occurred on 9-11, prior to us going to war with Afghanistan and Iraq, President George Bush uh, spoke to the nation and he said these words, Tomorrow, when you get back to work, work hard like you always have. My administration has a job to do. We will rid the world of evildoers. We will rid the world of evildoers. Those words were spoken by our president almost 20 years ago. And after trillions of dollars being spent and the blood and the sweat of many soldiers being spilled, we see our world today where it is as we are in the shadow of the 20th anniversary of the 9-11 attacks. This past week has reminded us that there are still evil doers who hate America and who kill Americans And I don't need to remind you that America itself is filled with evildoers. George Bush's promise 20 years ago was not necessarily a bad promise. It's just a promise that he could never fulfill, right? Uh, Because he lacked the credentials to rid the world of evildoers. You see, George W. Bush is not the Messiah, He doesn't have the right to take the book of human destiny and break its seals and bring God's judgment upon the wicked. He doesn't have eyes of fire and a sharp sword coming out of his mouth with which to slay the wicked. Neither does Barack Obama, neither does Donald Trump, and neither does President Biden. But Jesus has all of those things. He is the lamb who died and who rose again, and only he is worthy to take the book of human destiny and break its seals and ultimately rid the world of evildoers. And last week, we saw how at the end of the age, Jesus will storm the skies with his armies at his second coming from heaven And he will wage war against the armies of the Antichrist and slaughter them all with the sword that comes out of his mouth. 
And then we saw last week how he will have the Antichrist and the false prophet taken and thrown into the lake of fire. And we will see in our passage today that Jesus is just getting started as he establishes his kingdom on earth. And then, by the time we're done with our passage today, he defeats evil so entirely that evil will never raise its ugly head again. Our passage today provides for us as God's people one of the clearest portrayals of the coming kingdom of Christ upon the earth when Christ will literally reign upon the earth for what the text says is a thousand years and thereby fulfill many prophecies of scripture. There are many Old Testament passages that, that speak of a coming day that is still future when Israel will experience the blessings that God promised to Abraham and David pertaining to Israel's land and seed and throne. And when the world achieves an unprecedented level of peace and well-being under the earthly reign of the Messiah, yet in a way that falls short of the perfection that we would all associate with the eternal state. For example, listen to what Isaiah says in Isaiah chapter 11, and you're welcome to turn there if you like. In Isaiah chapter 11, let me just read verses 1 through 10 to you. Isaiah says, Then a shoot will spring from the stem of Jesse, and a branch from his roots will bear fruit. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and strength, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And he, speaking of the Messiah, will delight in the fear of the Lord, and he will not judge by what his eyes see, nor make a decision by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he will judge the poor and decide with fairness for the afflicted of the earth. And he will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he will slay the wicked." Also, righteousness will be the belt about his loins, and faithfulness the belt about his waist. And the wolf will dwell with the lamb, and the leopard will lie down with the young goat, and the calf, and the young lion, and the fatling together, and a little boy will lead them. In this day, if a mom looks out the window and sees her five-year-old son playing with a lion, she won't freak out. She won't worry about that at all. Verse 7, also the cow and the bear will graze. Their young will lie down together and the lion will eat straw like the ox. The nursing child will play by the hole of the cobra and the weaned child will put his hand on the viper's den. They will not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain. For the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Then in that day, the nations will resort to the root of Jesse, who will stand as a signal for the peoples, and his resting place will be glorious. 
me read to you a shorter excerpt from Isaiah 65, uh, verses 19 through 22. God speaks of this very coming day. And beginning in verse 19 of Isaiah 65, God says, I will also rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad in my people, and there will no longer be heard in her the voice of weeping and the sound of crying. No longer will there be in it an infant who lives but a few days, or an old man who does not live out his days. For the youth will die at the age of 100, and the one who does not reach the age of 100 will be thought accursed. They will build houses and inhabit them. They will also plant vineyards and eat their fruit. They will not build and another inhabit They will not plant and another eat, for as the lifetime of a tree, so will be the days of my people, and my chosen ones will wear out the work of their hands. There are other passages that I could read to you, but my point is this. If we take passages like this at face value and resist the temptation to spiritualize them, then we would have to say that these passages speak of a coming golden age that has not yet come, an age in which the curse of sin is lifted to some degree, but not entirely. So what is this golden but not yet perfect age being spoken of? It's the age that John has a vision of in our passage for today, an age that will be launched with the return of Christ that we saw at the end of Revelation chapter 11. And we're going to look at verses 1 through 10 of this vision today. And the way we'll break down our study of this passage is we'll observe five developments in John's unfolding vision of Christ's millennial reign upon the earth. Millennial means thousand years. Uh, A thousand annuals is literally what millennial means. Five developments in John's unfolding vision of Christ's millennial reign upon the earth. Development number one is an angel binds Satan and throws him into the abyss for a thousand year imprisonment. An angel binds Satan and throws him into the abyss for a thousand-year imprisonment. In the last chapter, we saw how the beast and the false prophet are taken and thrown into the lake of fire. Here in this passage, we're going to learn what happens to Satan. Observe what John says in verse 1. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding the key of the abyss and a great chain in his hand. And he laid hold of the dragon, the serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. Notice the four identifications given of Satan here. In verse 2, John tells us that this angel laid hold of the dragon, the serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan. This reads almost like a legal sentence that is being read with every relevant name of the criminal who's being thrown in prison being stated aloud. 
In this case, the names themselves are the indictments against Satan. First, Satan is called the dragon, which tells us that he is the one in Revelation 12 who tried to kill Christ at his birth and then tried to destroy faithful Israel during the tribulation period, driving faithful Israel into the wilderness to hide. And then in Revelation 12, 9, we're told that this dragon is the one who deceives the whole world. In Revelation 13, we learn that this dragon is the one who gave his power and throne to the beast who blasphemes the God of heaven and leads the world in a revolt against God. And here John is saying, this is the dragon whom this angel is now laying hold of here in Revelation chapter 20, verse 2. John continues in verse 2 by describing this dragon as, look at the text, the serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan. That he is the serpent of old tells us that he is the one who was in the Garden of Eden, deceiving Eve and tempting her and Adam to disobey God and eat of the forbidden fruit, which they did, bringing sin and death and a whole lot of heartache into our world. That he is called the devil here means that he is the accuser, the one who whispers accusations against God into the ears of mankind and the one who accuses the saints before God. That he is called Satan means that he is the adversary, the ultimate adversary of God and his people at every single turn. And here, finally, at long last, we are told that at Christ's second coming, an angel of God will come down out of heaven and lay hold of this one, the devil, and bind him with a great chain for a thousand years. And by the way, as you look at verse 2, you might want to underline those words, a thousand years, because you will see this again. What do you think John means by a thousand years? Not everyone comes to the same interpretation of this, but here at Cornerstone, we interpret a thousand years to mean, write this down, 1,000 years. That's actually essentially in our doctrinal statement where we say that the scriptures should be interpreted in their natural, literal sense. And therefore, when John says a thousand years, we're going to take him to mean a thousand years. Observe what John says this angel does in verse 3. And he threw him, the dragon, Satan, into the abyss and shut it and sealed it over him so that he would not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were completed. Now, we have seen the abyss mentioned a few times in the book of Revelation so far. Uh, we won't review those occasions, but just keep in mind that the abyss is not a place where Satan or anyone else would prefer to be. It's a place where evil spirits are incarcerated. In fact, you can write this reference down, Luke chapter 8, verse 31, 
where the legion of demons that were inside the demon-possessed man were pleading with Jesus not to send them into the what? The abyss. Yet here we see Satan being bound with a great chain, thrown into the abyss, and the door of the abyss is shut and then sealed shut with the key that this angel is said to have in verse 1. Now, why is Satan bound and held in the abyss like this? John says in verse 3, so that he would not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were completed. Sometimes, and we all know this, serving a stint in prison can change a person for the better. And sometimes we hope that sending someone to prison will, will help them to learn and become a better person. But from the language here, the purpose of Satan's imprisonment is not in order to reform him. The purpose is solely preventative. As the text says, so that he would not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were completed. Right now, we know that Satan is deceiving the nations and he is deceiving individuals the world over. According to 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 4, Satan is blinding the eyes of the unbelieving so that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. In Acts chapter 5, verse 3, Satan filled Ananias and Sapphira's heart to lie to the Holy Spirit early in the church's history. We know from 1 Peter 5, 8 that Satan walks about as a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. And we know from 1 Corinthians 7, 5 that Satan can tempt believers but when Satan is bound in this moment, here in Revelation 20, he will no longer be able to deceive the nations any longer, John says, until the thousand years were completed. And by the way, there's that number again, a thousand years in verse 3. You might want to underline these words and think carefully about what they mean. I'm just a simple preacher from Indiana. I'm actually married to a coal miner's granddaughter, so don't put too much stock in what I say. But it seems to me that when John speaks of a thousand years here, he actually wants us to understand him to be speaking of 1,000 years. Regardless, think about what good news this imprisonment of Satan would be for those who are living during this thousand-year period. While every human being right now is responsible for every choice that they make, there's a high degree to which our natural sinfulness is made so much worse because of the schemes of the devil. This world will be a much better place to live with Satan being bound in the abyss for this thousand-year period where one does not have to worry about him complicating things and deceiving the nations for this full time period of a thousand years. You say, well, what happens when this thousand years is completed? 
At the end of verse 3, John says, after these things, he must be released for a short time. Notice the word must that is used there. John's point is that it is in God's decreed plan befitting to his sovereign purposes that Satan be released at the end of this thousand-year period. We will learn more about this in uh, this passage as it continues to unfold. Now, let me just take a moment, if I can, to say something about those who would take a different view of this passage than what I have just said. Uh, there are some really good men and women, good commentators of, of the word who value the scripture highly uh, that we would receive a huge amount of benefit from who look at a passage like what we're looking at today and they view this as speaking not of a coming age but as the present age, the church age that we are in. And they would suggest that John's, some of them would suggest that John's language here speaks of Satan being bound to some degree, even now, while uh, the church progresses in its mission, gospel mission around the world. Uh, and so they would argue that there's a sense in which what is being said here about the binding of Satan is a reality right now. But this understanding seems hard to square, at least in my mind, with passages like 1 Peter 5.8, where we're told that the devil walks about as a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour, along with the other passages that I alluded to earlier. In fact, some writers on our side of this uh, issue have said that if indeed uh, this passage about the binding of Satan is speaking of the present age with him being bound to a chain, then Satan must be bound with a really, really long chain that one would question how worthwhile is that chain. But taking this passage at face value, which we're trying to do, this binding of Satan and sealing him up in the abyss under lock and key seems to speak of a state of affairs that is different than what we see happening in our world today. Satan is genuinely the cause of a whole lot of trouble in our world today, but he will be imprisoned in the abyss for this thousand-year time period to come. This binding and imprisonment of Satan is not all that John sees happening after Christ returns from heaven. This brings us to the second development in John's unfolding vision of the millennial reign of Christ. Number two, saints are given authority to judge and reign with Christ for a thousand years. Saints are given authority to judge and reign with Christ for a thousand years. Observe what John says in verse 4. Then I saw thrones, and they sat on them, and judgment was given to them. So John looks, and he sees thrones, and he sees that these thrones are not vacant. And he says, and they sat on them, and judgment was given to them. And we read that, and our question is, who is the they and the them that John is speaking of here? 
Well, whoever they are, they must be on Jesus' side, right? And the nearest antecedent that fits this description would be those who were dressed in fine linen following Christ on white horses at his second coming that we learned about last week. These are the saints who were with Christ at his coming. This understanding would fit with Revelation chapter 2, verse 6, where, or chapter 2, verse 26, where Jesus promises that the saints will have authority over the nations. This understanding also fits with Revelation 5.10, where we're told that one day the followers of the Lamb will reign upon the earth. This also fits with 1 Corinthians 6.3, where Paul reminds Christians that we will judge angels one day. In a way, John identifies at least some of the they as he continues in verse 4. He says, And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony of Jesus and because of the word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast or his image and had not received the mark on their forehead and on their hand, and they came to life and reigned with Christ for how long? A thousand years. The language John uses here indicates that these souls were dead, having been martyred for their faithfulness to Christ. But John says that they have now come to life and they're going to reign with Christ for a period of a thousand years. And by the way, there's that expression, a thousand years, again, which you may want to underline. This is now the third time that John has used this number and I'm thinking we're on safe ground in thinking that he might actually mean a thousand years, given the fact that he has said this three times now. The point of what he's making here in verse 4 is that Christ will reign upon the earth for a thousand years, and that these martyred saints will be among those who will reign together with him. Observe what John says as we move on into verse 5. He says, The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were completed. This is the first resurrection. Not to beat a dead horse, but right here in verse 5 is now the fourth mentioned of a thousand years, which indicates that John is not backing down from this number. One commentator that I was reading is suggesting that John doesn't really mean a literal thousand years here, but that he simply uses this number to refer to an indefinite but perfect period of time. But when I read that, I'm thinking John could have said that if he wanted to. Instead, he keeps saying a thousand years. And I think there's strong argument for understanding him to mean an actual thousand years. Aside from that, John's burden here in verse 5 is to tell us that not everyone is raised in the first resurrection that happens prior to this thousand-year reign of Christ. As for those who were not raised in this first resurrection, John says that the rest of the dead will be raised when the thousand years are completed 
which would make that the second resurrection, right? We will be able to infer who the rest of the dead are from what is said in the coming verses as John explains to us who it is that is raised in the first resurrection. In fact, observe the benediction that John gives in verse 6, saying, Blessed and holy is the one who has a part in the first resurrection. So as far as resurrections go, this first resurrection is the one that you want to be a part of, based on John's words here. And by the way, we can actually say that this first resurrection is organically comprised of three events. The resurrection of Jesus from the dead. He's the first fruits. He's the firstborn from the dead. The resurrection of the saints that occurs at the rapture of the church prior to the seven-year tribulation period. And the resurrection of the saints that occurs here at the second coming of Christ at the beginning of the millennial reign of Christ, you can draw a circle around these three phases and call them the first resurrection, which is the resurrection of the righteous. How do we know that this first resurrection entails the raising of the righteous? Well, John says here in verse 6, blessed and holy is the one who has a part in the first resurrection. Those who get raised in this first resurrection are blessed, which speaks of someone who is enviably fortunate. John also says that the one who has a part in this first resurrection is holy, which means they were made holy by Christ in life and that they will be forever set apart for a sacred purpose, a good purpose in the life to come. Why are they blessed? A few reasons. The first of which John states next when he says in verse 6, Over these, the second death has no power. We'll learn in the next chapter that the second death is the lake of fire where the wicked are judged. And John is saying here that anyone who participates in this first resurrection will be untouched by the judgment of the lake of fire. But there are other reasons that such ones in the first resurrection will be blessed. In verse 6, John says, But they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for how long? A thousand years. They're going to be priests of God, serving God, representing him to others and representing others before God. And they'll be leading others in the worship of God. And not only that, but John says that they will reign with him for a thousand years. In other words, Christ will reign on the earth for a thousand years, and these blessed ones will participate with him in the execution of his reign and actually reign with him for a thousand years, the passage says. By the way, this is now the fifth occasion in this text where we see a thousand years stated Daniel Aiken, who's a very gracious uh, commentator, he's not one of the more strident advocates for um, the premillennial point of view of a passage like this, 
Um, but he says this in his commentary, never in scripture when the word year is used with a number in front of it is its meaning not literal. And you can research the truth of that statement on your own. But once again, John seems to be sticking with this number of a thousand years. Seeing these saints reigning with Christ after his second coming for this thousand year period is not all that John sees. However, this brings us to the third development in John's unfolding vision of the millennial reign of Christ upon the earth. Number three, after a thousand years, Satan is released and deceives the nations to revolt. Observe what John says happens next. Beginning in verse seven, he says, when the thousand years are completed, Satan will be released from his prison. Wow. By the way, underline a thousand years there, that's the sixth time that we see this expression in this passage. Men like Justin Martyr, Irenaeus, are two ancient church leaders from the second century AD who believed, based on a passage like this, that there would be a literal thousand-year kingdom of Christ upon the earth. Unfortunately, if you read the history of this doctrine, you'll observe that some ancient Christians um, who believed in a future thousand-year reign of Christ, that they started attaching silly and unbiblical notions to this thousand-year reign of Christ on the earth. But be that as it may, their silly notions should not discredit the basic belief in a literal interpretation of a thousand years here, along with the specifics of what John is describing. As long as we're careful to just believe about this, what John tells us to believe. Be that as it may, here in this passage, John says, beginning in verse 7, when the thousand years are completed, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together for the war. The number of them is like the sand of the seashore. Wow. If we had never read this passage before, I don't think any of us would have expected this. This action of Satan shows us the utterly unredeemable character of Satan a 1,000-year prison term in the dreaded abyss has not served to humble him or to teach him a lesson or improve his character at all. In fact, observe what happens in verse 8. He's released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth, meaning he sets out to deceive people from nations all over the world. Back in chapter 12 of Revelation, Satan is described as the one who deceives the whole world. And now, after this thousand-year prison term, he gets out and goes right back to doing what he was doing before his imprisonment. This shows us, 
amongst other things, how utterly worthy Satan is of the judgment of God that will come to him in verse 10. You can be sure that none of the glorified saints who are on earth at this time, who return with Christ at his second coming, that none of those glorified saints, which will be us and so many others, will be among those who are so deceived by Satan. But the descendants of the survivors of the tribulation will be Satan's target here, and he will succeed with many of them. The language here shows us that the particular purpose of Satan's deception of the nations is, look at the text, to gather them together for the war. In other words, the war against Christ, who has been reigning as king upon the earth for a thousand years now. And you would think that Satan would have no success in turning people against Christ after a thousand years of Christ's reign upon the earth. But according to this passage, he experiences great success in doing this. Don't ever underestimate Satan and his ability to deceive. He can mess up anything, even the millennium. Look how successful he is. John says that the number of them is like the sand of the seashore. In other words, it's an unbelievable number of people who get deceived, so deceived that they gather together in a particular place to make war against Jesus Christ. This sad revolt is the final expression, the final proof of the intractable sinfulness of mankind. As Robert Mounts, the commentator, says, and I quote, a thousand years of freedom from the influence of wickedness does not change people's basic tendency to rebel against their creator. You place mankind in the greatest golden age that the world has ever known, and they will still allow themselves to be duped by Satan into wanting to make war against Christ. As shocking as verse 8 is to all of us, the language that John uses is clear enough, right? Except maybe one thing in verse 8. Listen again to the verse. Satan will come out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog. And all God's people said, no, to gather them together for the war, and the number of them is like the sand of the seashore. So you read verse 8 and say, what is this, Gog and Magog? By the way, if you're ever arguing with someone, just say Gog and Magog. It'll end the argument. They'll have no idea what you mean. But actually, John is very intentional here, and this is a rich and meaningful thing for John to insert here in what he is saying. This is John's way of saying to all of us, read Ezekiel 38 and 39 if you want to understand this war that I am describing. And if you read Ezekiel 38 and 39, uh, you will read 
Ezekiel's prophecy against Gog, who is the ruler of Magog, and how he and the other nations of the world are sovereignly allowed by God to come against Israel and how they will be utterly defeated and destroyed. Some commentators read Ezekiel 38 and 39, uh, and they believe that it describes a battle that will take place prior to the second coming of Christ. Uh, One commentator I read thinks this will happen at the midpoint of the tribulation. Um, I would suggest if you read chapters 38 and 39, you would actually encounter language in these chapters that will make you strongly wonder if these prophecies are speaking of the nations of the world descending upon Israel and being destroyed by Christ at his second coming. And that it, it sounds in some places like it's describing what we studied last week in the latter part of Revelation chapter 19. But the fact that John brings up Gog and Magog to speak of this battle, this war at the end of the thousand-year reign of Christ is his way of telling us, I think, that this battle is simply a resurrection of that old battle. In fact, the age-old battle. In fact, let me read to you a few verses from Ezekiel 38 and 39 Just listen as I read, beginning in Ezekiel 38, verse 8, God speaks to Gog of the land of Magog, and he says, After many days you will be summoned. In the latter years you will come into the land that is restored from the sword, whose inhabitants have been gathered from many nations to the mountains of Israel, which had been a continual waste, but its people were brought out from the nations, and they are living securely." All of them. So whenever this happens, it's when they are living securely in Israel. You will go up, the text says in verse 9. You will come like a storm. You will be like a cloud covering the land, you and all your troops and many peoples with you. Verse 15, you will come from your place out of the remote parts of of the north, you and many peoples with you, all of them riding on horses, a great assembly and a mighty army, and you will come up against my people like a cloud to cover the land. Verse 18 of Ezekiel 38, it will come about on that day when God comes against the land of Israel, declares the Lord God, that my fury will mount up in my anger, in my zeal, And in my blazing wrath, I declare that on that day, there will surely be a great earthquake in the land of Israel. Verse 22, with pestilence and with blood, I will enter into judgment with him and I will reign on him and on his troops and on the many peoples who are with him, a torrential rain with hailstones, fire and brimstone. I will magnify myself sanctify myself and make myself known in the sight of many nations, and they will know that I am Jehovah. In Ezekiel 39, beginning in verse 4, God speaks to Gog and says, You will fall on the mountains of Israel, you and all your troops and the peoples who are with you. I will give you as food to every bird 
every kind of predatory bird and beast of the field. And in verse 6, God says, I will send fire on Magog. I'll let you read Ezekiel 38 and 39 and explore the various layers of meaning and fulfillment there and work through that. But the least that we can say with certainty is that the Apostle John sees a vision of this final battle at the end of the millennium and it makes him think of Ezekiel 38 and 39 as he sees people from the nations of the world like the sand of the seashore coming against Jerusalem in this moment. In fact, some commentators um, very helpfully suggest that John probably is using the words Gog and Magog in the way we use the word Waterloo. We know that the Battle of Waterloo was a real battle where Napoleon was ultimately defeated, but we use the word Waterloo to apply to any battle in which a person meets their ultimate defeat. So it could be that John is saying Gog and Magog to give us a foreshadowing of the horrible defeat for these rebels, much like the defeat experienced a thousand years prior at Christ's second coming when Christ defeated his enemies so soundly. And this actually brings us to the fifth development in John's unfolding vision of the millennial reign of Christ upon the earth. Number four, fire from heaven devours those who revolt against Christ's kingdom. Fire from heaven devours those who revolt against Christ's kingdom. With this huge multitude having been deceived by Satan, they march against Christ and his people. John says in verse 9, And they came up on the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. What's the beloved city? Jerusalem. And fire came down from heaven and devoured them. The end. The beloved city is none other than Jerusalem. The language here indicates that this mighty throng of people surround the city of Jerusalem, which was obviously the city from which Christ has been wielding his reign throughout the millennium. And this city of Jerusalem is called the camp of the saints and the beloved city. It's where the saints of God are cloistered during this time of siege. And surrounding Jerusalem is a mighty throng of people who will be gathered to make war against Christ and his people. And their goal will be to unseat Christ from his throne and to take Jerusalem for themselves so that they can run the earth in a way that is more to their liking and more to Satan's liking. Before the nations of the world in the previous chapter tried to make war with Christ when he came from heaven to establish his kingdom on the earth, here their goal is to unseat Christ from his kingdom throne and to take it for themselves. And boy, as they saw the assembled multitude like the sand of the seashore, they must have thought that their chances were really good 
But as is always the case with those who make war with Christ, this battle will end in utter futility. In fact, this won't even be a battle. Look at the text. Once they're all assembled for this war against Christ and his kingdom, John says, fire came down from heaven and devoured them. It's that simple. They all assemble expecting some epic battle, giving their impassioned speeches to one another. And once they're assembled, fire falls from heaven and consumes them. And it's over just like that. In Revelation 19, we saw last week how a sword comes out of Jesus' mouth and destroys his enemies. But here it's fire from heaven that comes down upon them and consumes them. As for what happens to Satan, it is not fire that comes down from heaven upon him, but fire is his fate nonetheless. And this brings us to the final development in John's unfolding vision of the millennial reign of Christ upon the earth. Number five, Satan is thrown into the lake of fire to be tormented day and night forever. Satan is thrown into the lake of fire to be tormented day and night forever. Observe what John says in verse 10. And guys, imagine that you started in Genesis 1 and just were reading through the Bible and you just see all this evil and Satan doing what he does. And you get to this text, finally, verse 10. Uh, and what you would feel. Look at what it says. And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are also, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. In other words, he's never getting out. We saw back in the last chapter that the beast and the false prophet were thrown into the lake of fire. Here, the beast and false prophet have been suffering for 1,000 years and the language of this verse indicates that they're still there. They didn't get burned up immediately when they were thrown there. And once the devil is thrown into the lake of fire, John says they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. In the Greek text, the verb tormented is plural, indicating that John is talking about more than just one being being tormented this is about more than just the torment of the devil. John is saying they will be tormented, meaning the beast and the false prophet and the devil, the unholy trinity, they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Day and night means continuously, and the Greek expression translated forever and ever is the fullest expression for eternity that was available to John. This is for good. And with that, the reign of Christ upon the earth will not end, but will continue in ways that we will see unfolding in the coming chapters. We often tend to speak of the millennium as if it is only a thousand years. It is a thousand years, but it's better to see the millennium as the first thousand years of Christ's glorious reign that will extend over all of heaven and earth through all of eternity in ways that we're going to see unfolding in the coming chapters.
But what a day of rejoicing this will be for the people of God when Satan is cast into the lake of fire forever. Imagine our joy on that day. Never again will the people of God experience a single temptation from the evil one. Imagine what that will be like to live a trillion years in eternity and we're talking to one another and it's like, I haven't been tempted for a trillion years. In my thoughts, in my actions, in my attitudes, never again will the accusing voice of Satan be heard in God's universe. Never again will we hear his lies being whispered into our ears. Imagine the joy of a Satan-free existence for all of eternity where evil will never raise its ugly head again. Imagine what existence will be like for the people of God when Jesus Christ truly rids the world of evil and evildoers once and for all. Now, some may read the latter verses of this passage and maybe some of you are even asking this, why does God bind Satan for a thousand years and then release him to do more damage? Why does he release Satan to deceive the nations one final time at the end of the thousand years? Why not just leave him in the abyss? Well, at least a partial answer to that question is this, because releasing Satan at this time will serve to reveal the hearts of mankind to know who is worthy of judgment and who is not. You see, everyone during the millennium will by and large, at least outwardly, conform to Christ's rule as he rules with a rod of iron, with justice and righteousness. But when Satan is released, those who inwardly hate the truth will now be hearing from Satan the lies that they crave and they will reveal themselves. They'll out themselves for the wicked persons that they are. As Daniel Aiken says, and I quote, when the opportunity comes to rebel against the most wonderful leader the world has ever known, they will jump at the chance and thereby show themselves fitting recipients of the judgment of God that falls on them in verse 9. Is that helpful? My question for you this morning is where do you stand with Jesus? Are you living in submission to his loving, righteous reign over your life? Have you believed in him who died for sinners at the cross to give them atonement for their sins and to make them right with God or are you living in rebellion against Jesus? Living according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is right now working in the sons of disobedience. If you are living in sin apart from Christ and his atonement right now, God calls upon you to repent of your sins and to believe in Jesus and to surrender to his righteous and loving rule over your life, to let him reign rather than you reign. If you don't do that, 
if you live out your life and you never do that, believe in Christ and surrender to his loving reign, you will render yourself vulnerable to the lies of Satan and thereby reveal how worthy you are of God's judgment. Finally, just as we wrap up before we close, this passage that we've looked at today should greatly encourage us who are Christians. I know it has me this week. It, it is increasingly difficult to read the headlines nowadays, which often leave us with so much to weep over and to worry about. We live in a day in which evil flourishes and seems to be ushering the world into an ever-darkening night that is very troublesome to our hearts to behold. Yet our passage this morning reminds us that the world is actually moving toward this day of reckoning that will culminate in the righteous government of Jesus Christ over the whole earth. And he will reign in a future day upon the earth. And yes, evil will raise its ugly head again, but then God will utterly defeat evil once and for all. And it is our confidence in this future reality that helps us to face the present and to face the future with a confidence that is rooted not in any politician, but in Christ himself who is the same yesterday and today and forever. Amen? And I might add that this protects us from the temptation to look to and embrace any other Messiah other than Jesus. As Christians, we know, we ought to know, that the problem of evil is too big of a problem for George W. Bush. It's too big of a problem for President Biden and it's too big of a problem for Donald Trump. Maybe you're thinking, if he were just president, everything would just be so peaceful and so great. Evil is too big of a problem for Donald Trump and for anyone other than Jesus Christ. But it's not too big for Jesus. So whatever you do on the road ahead, keep your eyes on Jesus. Know that the events unfolding today are moving us toward this day of reckoning that will happen as sure as I'm standing here this morning when Christ will return from heaven and defeat his enemies and establish his kingdom upon the earth. Keep your eyes on him and don't let yourself put your trust in any Messiah other than him. Because Jesus promises to rid the world of evildoers, and he will keep that promise. Amen? Let's pray together. Lord, we do this morning pray for our leaders who are faced with a multitude of complex issues that defy simple answers Grant to them the wisdom that they need. Help us as your people to be lifting them up in prayer. Ultimately, though, Lord, our prayer is that you would help them to look to you 
Help them to look to Jesus. May they be so overwhelmed by the complexities of the problems that they face, that they, in desperation, seeing their poverty, cry out to Jesus and say, save me from my sins, from the evil within me, and give me wisdom to judge wisely and rule with wisdom and righteousness. And help us, Lord, to know where those distinctions are, to take our leaders before you in prayer, but at the same time, Lord, rescue us from putting our trust in these leaders with a messianic-sized trust. We already have our Messiah, so we're not looking for one. Jesus is our Messiah. And though most of us in this room say, yeah, 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 I believe in him, so often our hearts get drawn away and we start being duped into putting our trust in other messiahs than him. I pray if there's any in this room this morning, Lord, that have never bowed before you, Lord Jesus, and seen you full of grace and truth standing ready to save them, that they would believe in you today and receive atonement through your shed blood at the cross, that they would cry out to you for salvation. And we know, Lord, that you will hear their cry and you will not just save them, you will be pleasured and delighted to save them because no one who comes to you, you will ever cast out. So draw them to yourself, Lord. Save them and then help them to join us in seeking to live under your righteous and loving reign. And then help all of us as a church to point others to Jesus, to hold his name high. That he might be lifted up among us. And that people might be saved and drawn to the Savior through our witness. Should you answer this prayer, we will give you all the praise and all the glory. We ask these things in the mighty name of Jesus and all God's people said,